Section 3 of Malaria, a neglected factor in the history of Greece and Rome by William Henry Samuel Jones and Ronald Ross et al. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 3. Malaria in Ancient Italy. The introduction of malaria into Italy is a more complicated question than its introduction into Greece. The disease spread more slowly because the natural features of Italy, except in a few parts, are not so adapted to the growth of the mosquito. The effect upon the national character was not so profound as in the case of Greece, the most noticeable change being the evolution of savage brutality from sternness or cruelty. Unfortunately also, the earliest evidence of the existence of malaria is supported by no contemporary medical terminology. In Greek literature, the Hippocratic writings belong to the same epoch as the early allusions to malaria in non-medical authors, but the first Roman physician to leave us the treatise is Celsus, 50 AD, and malaria certainly existed in Italy long before that date. On the other hand, the modern quadro is greatly helped by the many works on Italian malaria which have appeared within the last 40 years. In spite of the fact that the majority of these were written before the final demonstration of the mosquito theory, and that many are hopelessly confusing because it is not very long since true malaria was sharply distinguished from a number of other diseases which used to be called by the same name. The writers have collected and classified much of the ancient evidence. The reader will find North's Roman fever extremely useful in this respect. Whenever it was that malaria appeared in Italy, and whatever be the period when it became endemic, it is quite certain that the numerous cases of pestilence referred to in early Roman history were not malarial. The writer reached this conclusion independently, but the words of North are well worth quoting. Some recent writers on the subject would have us believe that many of the great pestilences of which we have record were malarial. There is, however, but slight justification for this view. For the most part, they followed upon wars in times of scarcity. The mortality, as a rule, was great, and the disease communicable from one individual to another. More than this, it is recorded in many cases that their cattle suffered as much as human beings, if not more. Altogether, in the absence of all proof to the contrary, it would seem more just to assume that these visitations were not malarial, but rather to the nature of malignant typhus, or plague, so-called. At any rate, there is no proof whatsoever that they were malarial, and not only so, but it is highly improbable that such was the case. For as far as our experience goes, epidemic malaria of a grave type is chiefly confined to the tropics, and even there it is not common. It is likely enough that the worship of Fibris as a goddess at Rome has reference to these pestilential epidemics rather than to malaria. This conclusion is supported by the inscription which is quoted in all the lexiga. Febri Dive, Febri Sancte, Febri Magne, Camilla Profilo Amato. The epithet Magne may of course mean simply mighty, but it is possible that it has reference to the distinction condemned by Galen as unscientific between great and small fevers, the former being in most cases typhus or enteric. It is not surprising that we find but few references to malaria in early Roman writers. The disease spreads in an insidious manner and is often unnoticed until it has a firm hold on a district. 
Fortunately, however, evidence is not wanting that malaria made its appearance and perhaps became common about the year 200 BC. If this be so, the facts usually cited to prove the prevalence of malaria in ancient times, the hill-built cities, the thick woolen toga, the carefully preserved fire in the temple of Vesta, must receive another interpretation. It is so easy to explain them in other ways that they would certainly not have been brought forward if better testimony were forthcoming. Perhaps the earliest reference to malaria occurs in the comedian Plautus, died 184 BC, Curculio, 1, I, 17. Carutne febris tiheri velnubris tetris. Did a fever leave you yesterday or the day before? This is certainly not a definite allusion, but the line becomes most full of meaning if the reference be to an intermittent. Terence, died 159 BC, uses more explicit language in Hercuria 3.2.22. So, quid morbi est? Pam, febris. So, quotidiana? Pam, ita und. So, So, what kind of disease is it? Pam, fever. So, quotidian? Pam, so they say. This line is unintelligible, unless it be assumed that the writer was acquainted with periodic fevers other than quotidians. It may be objected that Plautus and Terence, who imitated Greek comedy, are here copying their original so closely that no inference as to the existence of intermittents in Italy may fairly be drawn. It might be replied to this that in all probability both writers would have avoided references which were unintelligible to their audience. But it so happens that other testimony confirms the impression given by the comedians that the Romans of this period had some personal experience of malaria. The famous censor M. Porcius Cato, died 149 BC, has left a treatise on agriculture, Diri Rustica. North refers to two passages in this book, but is not disposed to believe that they point to malaria. The first occurs in chapter 1, where Cato advises him who would purchase a farm to see it that it be loco salubri, and that it have bonum salum. Again in chapter 141, there is a prayer to Mars that he may keep away morbus visos invisosqui. Vague as these allusions are, a flood of light is thrown upon them by another passage to which North does not refer. This occurs in chapter 142. Et si bilis est et si lanes tigent. In case of black bile and swollen spleen. The conjunction of a large spleen and black bile, as has been shown in the discussion on Greek malaria, is almost proof positive that Cato knew the symptoms of malaria, cachexia, and makes it more probable that malaria is referred to it in the passages quoted above. From Cato to Cicero, 106-43 BC, is a long interval, and one which has left us but a few fragments of literature. It may, however, be noticed that the Q. Fabius Maximus, who was consul in BC 121, suffered from malaria, if we may trust the story told by the older Pliny. But in Cicero is found frequent mention of tertians and quartans, and his contemporary Varro, 118-29 BC, declares that in marshy places, crescent animalia quidem mintua, 
quae non possunt oculi consequi. And that these minute creatures entering the body by the mouth and nostrils produce difficiles morbos. From the time of Cicero, most writers mention malaria in unmistakable language, and it certainly had become, by the Christian era, a disease which the Romans were perfectly familiar. The physician Celsius, FL 50 AD, almost confines his discussion of fevers to the intermittents, so that in his book, Febris is practically equivalent to malaria. An opponent will perhaps inquire why it is inferred that malaria did not exist in Italy much before 200 BC. As in the case of Greece, so in this case also, it is impossible to prove that there was no malaria in early times. But it is most improbable that disease was endemic, and there is none but the flimsiest testimony that it was there at all. The following points have been urged. 1. The epidemics of fever in early times and the worship of Febris. 2. The woolen toga, the fire of Esther, and the hill-built cities. Now there is absolutely no reason for thinking the early epidemics to have been malarial. Periodicity and enlarged spleens are not mentioned in connection with them. The same remark applies to the morbus songticus of the Twelve Tables, and to the lures of the Arval Hymn. The other arguments are equally thin. The fire in the temple of Vesta was kept alight, owing to the custom common among primitive peoples of never letting the hearth die out. The reason for this are purely utilitarian, and would be more obvious to us if we did not possess lucifer matches. Cities were in ancient times built on hills, not only because mountain air is more healthy, even in a non-malarious country, but also because they were more easily defended against an enemy. The argument from the use of the heavy woolen toga is a little stronger. Such a garment is undoubtedly a protection against mosquito bites, as the insect cannot pierce thick woolen stuff. But it is at least very strange that the hygienic value of the toga was not a matter of tradition, and that its use gradually diminished, even when malaria was, by universal consent, a fairly common disease. Surely the shape and quality of the toga were due to its being the best garment that could be designed to meet all emergencies. In the earliest times, it was, with the exception of the sublic gaculium, the only garment worn by both rich and poor. That it would have afforded protection against malaria, had it existed, is an accident. The arguments which have just been attacked would have had some weight had there been independent evidence of malaria in early times. In the absence of that evidence, they have no value at all. There is, then, every reason for supposing that malaria was unknown in early times, was well known at the beginning of the 2nd century BC, and it was gradually became more common during the next 200 years. If this be so, it is at least a plausible conjecture that it was introduced by Hannibal's Carthaginian mercenaries. Africa seemed to have been the original home of the disease, and it is probable that some of his troops were infected. The constantly repeated devastation of Italy in the Second Punic War would be sure to turn a large part of it into marshy land, thus affording a convenient breeding place to the mosquitoes which were affected by the malaria patients among the Carthaginians. The similar condition of Attica during the closing years of the 5th century BC offers a striking parallel. This opinion does not rest on mere conjecture. We are told by Livy, then the year 208, a severe epidemic attacked Italy. It did not cause many deaths, but resulted in much lingering disease, that is, most probably, 
chronic malaria. Where was malaria most prevalent? The existence and even the prevalence of malaria in Italy from 50 BC is an undisputed fact, and there is no need to prove what is universally admitted. But it will be useful to show that it was common, not only in certain country districts, but in Rome itself. Malaria in Rome The evidence for the existence of malaria in this city is copious, and of different kinds. Galen, FL, 164 AD, distinctly states that the most virulent form of it, the semi-tertian, was of every day occurrence in Rome. The physician Celsus, 50 AD, says nothing to lead the reader to suppose that Rome was less frequently visited than the country districts. Martial, died 102 AD, bids the schoolmaster close his school in summer because estate puri si valent satis discunt. Juvenal, died 130 AD, refers to a sick old man as a quartan fever, and Horace tells of a mother who promises Jupiter that her son shall stand naked in the Tiber on the day his quartan leaves him. The works of Horace are by themselves sufficient to prove that in his time, he died BC 8, malaria was endemic in Rome, and incidentally that many country districts were free from the disease. It will be worthwhile to quote the chief passage in full. In Odes 2.14 occurs the stanza, Frustra surrento Marte Carabimas, Fractisc Russi Fractubis Hadriae, Frusta per Octomons Nocentum, Corporbius Metimus Arsturum. Austria brought in the autumn rains, and so helped to produce the malarial season. Even more appropriate is a passage in Satires 2, 6, 16, Fall where the poet says that on his highland estate he need not fear the unhealthy autumn, during which the goddess of death reaps a richer harvest in Rome. Ergo ubi mi in mons, et in arceum ex ubre removi, qui prius illustrium satiris usacqua pedestri, nec mela mi ambitio perdit, nec plumbius sastur. Actamasque gravis, libitane questis, in fact, it seems to have been not unusual for those who could afford it to leave Rome during the unhealthy season. So we find Horace advising his friend and patron, Hercules, to leave Rome in July. Here and there, as in the ninth satire of Juval, where the poet seems to be poking fun at an old man attacked by a quartan, it is clear that the young were among the chief victims. Another instance occurs in Horace, satires 2, 3, which has been quoted above. It is not, then, just possible that, although alumni in Odes 3.23 reverse primarily to the young of the flocks, there may be also a reminder of the fact that darling children had every reason to fear the sickly season when the year brings forth fruit. Nec pestilentium sentient africum, fecunda vertis nec sterilium sedes, obigenium aut dulces alumni, pomifero Grave Tempest Anno. The most pertinent passage of all is Epistles 1, 7, 5 to 9, where Horace says that all parents fear for their children in autumn. Dom Ficus Prima Colorica. Dissentorium decorat laboribus artis. Dum puris omnis pater et matcula palet. 
officiosque sedutiltes et opella forensis, adducit febris et testamenta resignat. Marshall, too, has been pointed out already, believed that boys learned enough in summer if they kept well. All this evidence points to the conclusion that malaria had been long endemic in Rome itself, since on its first introduction the sufferers who attract most notice are the adults. Modern Rome, on the contrary, is comparatively free from malaria, although of course the immediate neighbourhood is highly infected. How has this striking change come about? Improved sanitation has nothing to do with the question, for malaria is not a filth disease. The modern ghetto at Rome, although it was the foulest quarter of the city, was nevertheless even less infected with malaria than other quarters. The case was probably to be found in the form of the atrium, the hole in the centre of the roof, which let out the smoke from the fire, also let in the rain, and this collected in the small cistern underneath. Compulivum impulivium. Each Roman house contained a pool of standard water, admirably adapted to serve as a breeding ground for the mosquito. Another cause was the Tiber, with its frequent inundations. These gave much trouble. See Tacitus, Annals, 1, 76, Histories, 1, 86, Suetonius, Div, Org, 30, Otho, 8. The banks of the river were unhealthy. Tacitus, Histories, 2, 93. At the ascent of Tiber, Germonarium, Golomog, Obnoxia, Morbis, Corpa, Fluminis, Avididis, et Estis, Impactentia, Lepferex. Malaria in the rest of Italy. The prevalence of malaria in Rome will prove of importance when we discuss the influence of malaria upon the national character. But it is time to turn to the other part of the question and to inquire whether the country districts were also afflicted. A large area seems to have been untouched. The words of Horace imply that his mountain farm was healthy enough and rich Romans would hardly have built their villas in highly malarious regions. On the other hand, the reference to malaria in Cato shows that some parts of the country were infected quite early, and Cilius Italicus, circa 25-101 to 101 AD, distinctly states how unhealthy were the Pompatine marshes in his time. Edcots Parisfera Pompatini, Ulugain Cambi, Que Saturnae Nebulosa Palis Restagnant, et Arto, Leventes Coeno per Squalidia Turbidius Serva, Cogit Aquas, Ufens etque Infisit Equora Limo. It is clear from Horace, Saturnalius 1, 5, 14. Mali Culisius, that this district was infected with mosquitoes. The great country houses were not always healthy, for Lucullus had a villa in a region which was probably malarious. Vitruvius, FL, 15, BC, remarks that marshy districts were pestilential. Quibus autumn insidious sunt paludits, et non habent publicos exitus profluences neque per flumina, neque per fossas uti pompitine, stando patruscant et humoris graves as pestilences inis locus immutant. Cicero mentions unhealthy districts, and a Roman army was apparently attacked by malaria in the neighbourhood of Brundisium, after spending some time in the healthy regions of Gaul and Spain. 
Besides these direct statements, there are frequent references to districts passing out of cultivation. Examples are juvenile, Saturnalis, 10, 102, Lubris, Horace, Ep, 1, 11, 7, Gabis Desitur, Lucerne, 7, 391, and Horace, Odes, 2, 15. How far this population was due to malaria is a difficult question to answer. Lucerne lays the blame upon the great civil war between Caesar and Pompey as continuation after the death of the former. The probability is that civil war made a district desolate, and then malaria entered and rendered it uninhabitable. Certain is that southern Latin must once have been healthy and prosperous. Later on it was a waste bog with scarcely an inhabitant. When it is remembered how easily land becomes marshy left to itself, and how certainly mosquitoes which carry malaria will, if they have the chance, utilize these conditions to the full, the conclusion reached above is at least not unreasonable. It may then be inferred that some country districts, especially those in the modern province of Rome, were highly malarious, and that others, perhaps the majority, were comparatively healthy. Rome itself suffered from the disease in an endemic form. Celsus it will be convenient to discuss separately the evidence of the physician Celsus. In this way, it becomes plain that non-medical evidence by itself is sufficient to demonstrate how prevalent malaria was at Rome during the late Republic and the early Empire. But there is another reason why special care is necessary in dealing with this particular author. Celsus was a scientific inquirer rather than a practitioner. Law Oratory, tactics, and agriculture claimed his attention as well as medicine. His object in writing seems to have been not so much to put on record his own experience as to rescue the art from the ill repute in which it was held by the majority of the Romans. It is therefore not unlikely that no small part of his work is second-hand information borrowed from his Greek predecessors. His discussion of malaria, its symptoms, and treatment is careful and full, but it's not certain how far it proves that malaria was prevalent in Italy. Of course, the work of Celsius would have been different if malaria had not been an Italian disease, but does the extent to which malaria occupies a treatise correspond to the extent of the infection? The point may be illustrated from the history of medicine in our own country. Everybody knows how common the terms tertian og, quartan og, and og used to be, both in literature and the common speech but it would be a great mistake to suppose that all these orgs were malaria. Some of them certainly were, but very many, probably most, were not true tertians or quartans at all. The reason for this misuse of terms is as curious as it is important. Any reader who looks up a catalogue of the editions of Kellen will be struck by the number which appeared in the 16th century, and to a less extent the 17th. Independently of this fact, it is known that Galen formed a textbook for doctors of the period, although afterwards a Hippocratic tradition grew up. Now both Galen and Hippocrates discuss intermittence more fully than other fevers. So much is this the case, that doctors trained in the ordinary medical school of the 16th century would be apt to assign a periodicity to a fever which was not really an intermittent. Creighton is very clear on this point. Og in early English meant any sharp fever, and most commonly a continued fever. The special limitation to intermittence appears to have followed the revival of the study of the Greco-Roman writers of medicine, Galen, above all, in the 16th century. 
In the Tudor period, there were, in this country, actual experiences of strange fevers, which were interpreted according to the Greek teachings of Quaturians, Tertians, and Quartians, with their several bastard or hybrid or larval forms. These, as I have said, were certainly not the endemic fever of malarious districts. It is impossible to be quite sure that something of the same kind has not caused the prominence of malaria in the treaties of Celsus. For this reason, it is better to state the case for Italy without relying upon his testimony, but since non-medical evidence has shown that malaria existed and it was common, the book De Medicina may be used as confirmatory evidence. The pathology of various diseases occupies the whole of the third book. Fevers are discussed in chapters 3 to 17. Of this proportion, practically the whole except chapters 7 and 9 deals with malaria. Indeed, the treatment of non-malarial fevers is slight and unsatisfactory, and tends to show either that diseases of the typhus and typhoid groups were rare in Italy, or that their symptoms have been confused, as the Greeks confused them, with those of the intermittents. Malaria is by far the most common equivalent of febris. To show this, it will only be necessary to quote the opening words of the third chapter. The next point is the healing of fevers. These both affect the whole body and form a class of disorders which are especially common. One kind is the quotidian, another is the tertian, another the quartan. Sometimes, but rarely, the periodicity exhibits a longer interval. The description of these maladies is the same as that in the Hippocratic writings, and is only interesting because it proves, unless indeed Celsus is a mere plagiarist, a most unlikely assumption, that malaria has remained as an unchanged type ever since the period when it first made its appearance in history. It will be sufficient to give a brief abstract. Quartans began with shivering, horror. Then there follows an outburst of heat. Of tertians, there are two kinds. One like the quartan in character, only exhibiting a different periodicity, the other being far more malignant. It returns every third day, but of the 48 hours it occupies, 36 more or less, so that although the fever grows lightly, it never disappears entirely. Most physicians call this the semi-tertian, immetrician. Quotidians are of various kinds. Some begin with heat, some with chill, some with shivering. Sometimes the fever disappears altogether, at other times it simply diminishes, thus giving the appearance of a continuous fever. They also differ much in severity, and occasionally the fever is high on one day but less severe on the next, or occurs at one time one day and at another on the next. Sweating often occurs at the end of the attack, but not always. More than one access, with a corresponding number of remissions, sometimes occur every day. It is interesting to note the stress laid upon the malignant tertian, semi-tertian, which Galen tells us was very prevalent in Rome. The fact that, in quotidians, the excess sometimes ran in two series, one series occurring every third day, the other on the alternate days, seems to refer to double tertian infection. Mixed infection is also apparently implied, although it is not recognised as a true cause of certain phenomena of periodicity. The treatment of fever is much more detailed than its diagnosis. Celsus was writing in order to enhance the dignity of the science, and the Romans were always more ready to listen to anything which promised to be of practical use than to discussions of the less obvious utility. 
Unlike the Greeks, they did not want to be told that tertians came from yellow, quartans from black bile. Their great desire was to know a cure for both. Accordingly, Celsus gives much information as to the proper times of administering food and drink to the patient, and enters into a detailed account of the cures for semi-tertians, which are treated early, possibly because of their great malignity. For fever symptoms, chill preceding fever, shivering in fever, quotidians, tertians, quartans, two quartans, and quotidians following the quartans. Apart from the elaborate treatment, which is much fuller than that given to any other disease, there is but little that is worthy of notice for the present inquiry. The care taken in administering food and drink, and the recommendations that the patient should have exercise, if possible, when free from fever, are indications of the extreme weakness which accompanies or follows malaria. The quartan, however, serious as after-effects may be, was apparently regarded as a petty ailment. See especially 3.15, Nam Quartana, Neminem, Iguilat. This gives some point to Juvenal's sneer at the old man with the quartan. There's a reference to the existence of fever, probably malaria, in Egypt and Asia, i.e. the Roman province, while the fact that Heraclides of Tarentum is twice mentioned seems to show he paid particular attention to malaria. If so, Tarentum and its neighbourhood may have been as badly infected as the coastline of southern Italy is now. Enlargement of the spleen is not mentioned very often in the work of Celsus. Here again the cause is to be found in the purely utilitarian object of the author. Few Romans will be interested to know that large spleens and the melancholia often occur together, but they did want to know how a large spleen might be cured, and so there is a whole chapter, 5.16, devoted to the question. It may be inferred, then, that Celsus was perfectly familiar with malaria, although the tradition of Greek medicine may have led him to dilate unduly upon it to the exclusion of other fevers. The utilitarian character of his treatise accounts for the few interesting remarks he makes about the origin and symptoms of the disease. Influence of Malaria Upon the Roman Character Modern science has pronounced with no uncertain voice its judgment upon malaria as a factor in morality. The effect of the disease on the people is to unfit them for labour, to cause loss of time, loss of money, and generally to diminish their producing powers, while at the same time the race, if left to itself, tends towards moral and physical degradation. Perhaps the most incapacitating disease to which man is liable. Now it has been shown that malaria was endemic in Rome, probably from the time of Plotus and Terence. Hence, it is practically certain that the city population was gradually deteriorating. But from economic causes, Rome was growing more and more congested ever since the Second Punic War. The results were a sparsely populated country with a degraded rabble in the metropolis. Statesmen, perceiving the effect, but not the cause, did all they could to bring back the people to the land. But economic causes were against them. The deterioration in the national character was against them, and the continuous civil wars of the first century BC were against them. The wasteland increased, in spite of ineffectual attempts to reclaim it. The Roman people became a tainted and debased folk, penned up within the walls of the city. New blood was constantly being introduced, during the early empire from healthier and sounder races, Lucan, Seneca, Marshall, and Quintilian were all Spaniards. This fresh infusion was self-infected in time, 
and the Roman Empire at least fell to pieces. It is not pretended that malaria was a sole cause, but it is certain that disease gave full scope to other disintegrating factors. Every now and then, the modern world is shocked by atrocities committed by white men in tropical regions. Humanity and justice seem to be forgotten. Civilization and education are powerless to prevent furious outbursts of savagery. How much of this is due to the baleful influence of malaria is known only to those who have an intimate acquaintance with the disease. Something of the same kind happened in Rome. Malaria made the Greek weak and inefficient, and turned the sterner Roman into a bloodthirsty brute. If melancholia produced crossness, Atrabilis made its victims mad. The terrible pictures of life in the first century AD, as painted by Tacitus and Juvenal, show that Roman society was not only wicked, but diseased. The extravagant cruelty, the wild desire for excitement, the absence of soberness and self-control, all point clearly to some physical defect. That malaria was endemic in Rome is an undoubted fact, and the result of several generations being subject to its influence would certainly be a change of national temper. The particular form in which the change manifested itself would depend upon the prominent national characteristics and upon environment. In Rome, all these tended to produce excited savagery. Malaria will do this now, even in the case of Europeans, and yet moderns have the advantage of the one drug, quinine, which deserves the name of specific inasmuch as it alone can be relied upon to cure the disease for which it is a remedy. Surely in ancient times, when no specific was known, the disease must have produced far more dreadful results than it does now. The writer's task is now concluded. One object has been before him throughout, to encourage a more thorough investigation into those diseases which, instead of acting as nature's pruning hooks, sap a people's strength and ruin its character is a task which concerns our own nation very nearly. In many of the British possessions, notably India, malaria is an ever-present enemy. Within our own shores there is to be found an endemic disease, which, though perhaps less distressing to the individual, may be equally fatal to the race when a few more generations have come and gone. For it must be remembered that the effect of a disease are often greatly increased by the mode of life and the general environment of its victims. The whole tendency of modern life with its excitement, high pressure, intellectual strain, even its adulterated foods, is an encouragement to influenza to exact its penalty to the utmost. Often epidemic in the past, and now appears to be endemic, the strain it puts upon the nervous system is a commonplace. Whether it is fated to cause deterioration of the race is a question which only the future can decide. Be this as it may, at any rate, there is food for thought in the possibility that it was an unostentatious melody which dimmed the blaze of glory that shines round early Greece until it finally fades away into the dark degradation of Hellenistic times. End of section 3